Dear Christian friends, Jesus' words to us this morning challenge us. You heard them in the gospel already, but particularly verse 51, in which Jesus speaks these words, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. I almost imagine that, it, that if we were there listening to Jesus as he spoke these words, we, we might kind of do a double take and say, wait a minute, excuse me, Jesus, did you just misspeak yourself? Did you mean to say it the other way around? Did you mean to say that you came to earth not to bring division, but you came to bring peace? So off guard would we be, caught off guard and, and, and alarmed by his Words. However, if you listen to the words before and the words after, verse 51, it becomes kind of clear that he, he did, in fact, mean exactly what he said. But it challenges us, doesn't it, for a number of reasons. As you consider that, that Jesus says, I, I came to bring division, it almost sounds as if Jesus, his words, stand in support of those on the outside of the church looking in. You know the accusations and the charges against organized religion and particularly Christianity. You've heard skeptics raise the question or even well-intentioned people say, well, listen, if, if you Christians can't even all get together on what the Bible actually teaches, if there are so many different denominations and so many different synods, if you can't even agree on what the Bible teaches, then tell me why I should take a chance at assuming I, I guess the right one. And it's not just that, but even the, the charges that, that go a little bit further. The, the charges of division, that, that their problem with Christianity is that it is such a divisive religion. That, that it is condemning one group here and it's hating another group over there. And as we reflect on those charges and these words of Jesus, it almost sounds that, that he stands in support of those charges, doesn't it? We like to say and, and sling back at them, well, yeah, but the only problem is we have to acknowledge you're right. In fact, Jesus himself said, you are right. And not only do we see that uh, trouble us, that, that Jesus' words seem to stand in support of those outside the church, those who, who charge Christianity and Christians with being divisive, but the other reason that these words challenge us and, and trouble us this morning is that they seem to stand in direct contradiction, in contrast to what Jesus himself says elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, I think now that it's September, it's, it's okay to officially start talking about Christmas, right? So let's think of a very familiar lesson or verse that we hear that time of year. Back in the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 9, verse 6, listen to the title that, that Isaiah gives. And remember, this is before Jesus was ever even born, 700 years earlier. Isaiah says of Jesus, He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah calls him that before he's ever even born. And then, of course, you know what the angels proclaimed on the day of his birth, right? You remember, as Luke chapter 2 records it for us, that they started praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Huh. 
And as if that wasn't enough, out of his own mouth, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, promising them in, in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Yet, this morning, we hear Jesus say, Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. This would be a paradox, wouldn't it? We have Jesus saying that he came to bring division, and we have the rest of Scripture also saying that Jesus came to bring peace. So how are we to make sense of these words this morning? How do we harmonize the, the, the reality that, that Jesus came to bring peace or, or claims that, and yet Scripture says differently? Well, it, we do well to, to let Jesus continue to speak to us this morning in the Gospel. In the next verse, after 51, he goes on to explain, From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Notice, Jesus doesn't mention anybody who's neutral or indifferent in the family. Part of the point is that, that division. You're either for or against, right? And we also know that Jesus didn't mean to, to take these literally in the sense that every family would be divided in the same way. Okay? But we know the points that Jesus is illustrating. And here's what I, I wish would be the case at this point. I wish that we would only know what Jesus was talking about, hypothetically speaking. I wish that as we're trying to make sense of these words in these verses particularly, that it would be a matter of mere theory that we were talking about. But I'm guessing the reality for just about everyone here is that theory isn't our teacher this morning, but experience is. Because I don't think that, that anyone here would have to shake the family tree too much to find somebody else that is described in these verses from Jesus. Somebody else that has caused sleepless nights to you because they don't either care about or they despise the Jesus that you have come to love so much. I'm guessing that you know what it's like to have family gatherings that are filled with tension over this very matter. That you know what it's like to cry tears to offer up prayers, to scream, and to pray again, and again, and again. Because you know exactly what Jesus is speaking about when he talks about this division within families. This isn't hypothetical. So what are we to, to do with this reality that, that Jesus speaks to us about division in our families that we all know too well. What are we to do about it? In the light of the fact that, that Jesus' own words seem to contradict the peace that Scripture says he came to bring, and that his words seem to support the skeptics on the outside looking in that, that accuse us, and, and they would say validate their perspective that, that Christians are all divided anyways, we're inclined to just kind of stop and say, Jesus, where, where are you? Aren't you the one who's in charge? Aren't you calling the shots? Aren't you the one who's in control? And, and aren't you able to make sure that, that peace 
overshadows division and that peace, not division, wins the day, what are you doing? Well, again, best to let Jesus explain what he's doing, right? In the verses prior to that that troubling verse 51, right at the beginning of our, our text this morning from Luke, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed or constrained I am until it is completed. When you hear Jesus speak those words, as you reflect on them, do they strike you as as words that give the impression this is something that Jesus was excited about? That this is something that Jesus was very much looking forward to? That this thought of, of what was coming was something that filled him with the warm fuzzies? Hardly. In fact, that's not at all the case, is it? Jesus wasn't looking forward to this at all, and yet he knew that this was his mission. And he knew it really in, in, in two ways it was his mission. Though he says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, Jesus' perspective of things, he wasn't just referring to the time that he was here on earth. There's really, in, in Scripture's view or God's view, I suppose, we don't have time, we are constrained by chronology. There's, there's really maybe a simple division. History is either the time before Jesus came or the time after Jesus came. So when Jesus says that I have come, he's not only talking about the time that he was here on earth, he's also looking way ahead to a time that hasn't happened yet, his return on the last day. And though many might not agree with it, it's the truth, Jesus does not delight in the prospect of having to judge and condemn anyone on that last day. He knows, though, nonetheless, that that when he does return, and and he's showing that in these words, he knows that when he comes back, that is going to be a part of that task and that responsibility to determine, to, to judge, to condemn those who rejected him as the way and the truth and the life. He knows that that is a a part of his responsibility to to look at all of those who rejected his blood as the only payment for sin and the only hope for salvation that he is finally going to have to declare that they are going to receive what they wanted all along. Separation from God. Being divided from him not just for the, the temporal time here on earth but for eternity. And Jesus does not delight in that prospect. That's why he speaks in these terms of of wishing it was already in the process or already had happened because his heart agonizes over it. Why? Because as he's considering that prospect of judgment when he will return on the last day, you know why it's it's doubly hard for Jesus, almost like a, a sword piercing his heart, stabbing him? It's not just because he knew that he would be judging those who rejected him, But it's that reality on top of this. He knew that he too would suffer the very same judgment and condemnation. So that no one else would ever have to. And friends, we can't begin to imagine that kind of agony. To know that at one point not only would he be responsible for judging and condemning those who have rejected him, which he does not want to do at all, but but doubly sad because he already has suffered that judgment and condemnation 
hoping that nobody would have to suffer the same fate. He already suffered judgment and condemnation for your division and my division, for, for our self-centeredness, for our insistence that, that our way or the highway, for our lack of love, uh, for care and concern for others. Jesus, those sins and every other sin, knew that he would suffer judgment and condemnation for us. That's not the part that, that Jesus looked forward to, not judgment on the last day and certainly not suffering hell in our place. But yet, it was tied directly to what Jesus delights in. Jesus reminds us as we consider the, the words of, that, that Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus. We called him down from the tree and, and he said, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And that, dear friends, is what Jesus delights in. Not judgment, not condemnation, but salvation, rescue, forgiveness. For everything that you have ever done and everything that I have ever done or could do, Jesus came. Even though our sin brought about that division from God, Jesus didn't want to see that become a permanent division. And so he went to hell and he suffered damnation for us and for all people so that nobody would have to suffer that fate. That is what Jesus delights in, seeking and saving those who are lost. When we consider this paradox, peace and division, here's the sad reality, I guess, in some respects, too. Though Jesus really did come to bring peace, he showed when he died on Calvary as he underwent the, the baptism that he spoke of, of suffering and being crucified and died and, and being damned in our place. He showed himself to truly be the Prince of Peace. He showed himself to, to make good on that title that Isaiah had given to him. He showed why the angels sang about peace on the earth on the day of his birth. He showed exactly how only he could offer to his disciples a peace that the world cannot give. But here's what God will never do. He will never force that peace on anybody. Jesus came into our world and he brings that peace and gives it freely and fully. That peace is free, but it will never be forced. That would go against who God is. And can you only imagine the skeptic saying, well, I didn't want this, you forced me to have it. The reality is that Jesus holds this gift out for free, but only those who, as the Holy Spirit, works in their hearts and leads them to believe, and this only by God's grace, only those with the eyes of faith will see that peace that Jesus offers them. So what do you do now? How do you take this away to, undoubtedly, the family situation that came to mind when we talk about division? Well, it's kind of a troubling thought, isn't it? If, if Jesus himself isn't going to force his peace on anybody else, then what hope do we really have to change the hearts or minds of our loved ones that have rejected Jesus to this point? 
What hope do we have if Jesus himself isn't going to force his peace on any? Well, first, first and foremost, a couple of things to do in terms of applying this to your loved ones and, and your friends. First of all, get rid of that burden. Because Jesus didn't ask you to bear it. That's not on your shoulders. That's not a weight that he asks you to carry around because he expects you to be responsible for convincing or converting anybody else of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Let Jesus bear that burden. And then, live in the peace that you know is yours. You go to sleep in peace. You wake in peace. You walk in that peace each and every day. And yet, so often we forget simply to soak up that peace on a daily basis. To live in the peace that is ours, that that Jesus has freely given to us, that we know And as that becomes a more regular pattern in our lives, as we live and bask and simply rejoice in the peace that is ours, it will also become more natural. And others will see it in you. Others will see what it looks like and how you handle situations that are contentious, situations that are troubling, and yet you always handle them in peace. Make no mistake that that sometimes the biggest impression that you might have on somebody else is is when they see what peace actually looks like in your lives. And that's how they start to connect the dots and see the shape of the cross. And as they see that in you, finally, the the last step, don't, don't ever tire of proclaiming that peace to them, of sharing it with them. And that doesn't mean you have to spit out 85 Bible passages. It doesn't mean that you have to prove how well you know God's Word. What they need to see in you is what that peace actually looks like. To know that when you royally mess up in your life, that doesn't rob you of the peace that Jesus has brought for you. To know that no headline, no matter how traumatic, no matter how troubling, no matter how much the rest of the world shakes its head and says, where is God now? That even is no bigger than the peace that has filled your heart. To tell them what it means to be able to openly and freely confess your sins to another when you have wronged or harmed or hurt somebody else, not because you're afraid of what will happen, but because you already know how Jesus has responded. When we confess, he says, be at peace. Your sins are forgiven. They're already paid for. And as you proclaim that, as you share that peace with others, the hope and the prayer is that though they might be divided right now, someday they too might know the peace that you know. Amen.